So now I'd be grateful if you turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And a well-known passage, um, but uh, we read from verse 1 down to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you that it is so rich and deep for us. We pray you'd help us uh, to grasp the main things you would have us hear today. Father, we pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been uh, looking at God's covenant over the last few weeks and we have been following how uh, it's been unfolding in the history of redemption uh, all the way from Adam in the Garden of Eden right the way through to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And uh, we have noted that there have been various... um, what you might call administrations or periods where uh, covenants have been developed. But they all come under one common idea. The unfolding covenant of grace. God's single everlasting covenant. And it comes to fullness and fruition in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. And so all the way from the Garden of Eden after the fall, God has been in the business of reaching out to his people with grace and kindness and seeking to draw them to himself. Now the term New Covenant only appears once in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31.31. But that doesn't make the idea of it an obscure one. 
There is much that the prophets speak of in the Old Testament about the new thing that God is going to do. So everything seems to have failed. The kingship has failed after David. Everything went downhill after David. Uh, And it seems as though God's covenant promise have, have failed, but they haven't actually. And God is about the business of doing a new thing. And one is a new covenant, but he also speaks of new things. Isaiah 42 verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Or Isaiah 43.19 Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. I'm going to remind you of John the Baptist coming in the desert. Preparing the way for the coming of the new thing. Which is Jesus, of course. And not only in the coming of Jesus, but in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 65 verse 17 Behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Or Ezekiel 36:26 The new thing that happens to people I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And all of this is new, you see. The new covenant brings the newness, a new phase, if you like, in God's gracious provision for his people. And while we say it's a new covenant, it's important to remember that it's it's still an everlasting covenant. That's what Ezekiel says of it in Ezekiel 27 verse 26. I will make future. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And that simply echoes the things that God said about his previous covenant administrations. The covenant with Noah is an everlasting covenant. The covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17, is an everlasting covenant. And now the new covenant is an everlasting covenant. Now some people have thought, well do these covenants all stack up on top of each other? No, 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 of course not. One flows out of the other. They're organically connected. One single everlasting covenant. The covenant of grace. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, all the promises of the Old Testament are therefore, yes and amen, in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And it's that new covenant, therefore, that Jesus Christ begins to bring to fullness And that night when he he met with his disciples in the upper room and he shared the bread and the wine and as Luke recounts this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood and Paul takes that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and speaks of the new covenant the blood of the new covenant. You see it was in his blood that the new covenant, indeed the whole covenant of grace, is sealed. The blood of the very Son of God, the Christ, who is this mediator 
of this new and better covenant, the new covenant. And so Christ and his covenant blessings become the proclamation of the apostles and the early church as they go out into the world and the church holds out the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world offering those covenant blessings to men and women, boys and girls you too children can receive those covenant blessings indeed many you already have if you're here today This is a good news. I want to take time this week, therefore, to... I know on Thursday I said we're just going to have one more. We're going to have two more. One today, one next week. Too much to say in one sermon. But today I want to talk about, you know, begin to talk about the implications of this covenant for us. And I want to talk about how salvation comes to people Today. And then next week I want to talk about what it means for church life. The implications for church life in this this covenant. So what does it mean for uh, salvation? For this I want want us to look at Ephesians chapter 1. One of the things you you may know about this already. From verse 3 through to 14. is all one sentence in the Greek. (laughs) Uh, We we chop it up into bits uh, to make it more readable and intelligible. But Paul has it as a sequence of connected dependent clauses, if I can put it that way. His his flow of thought is is just going from one thing to the other and he's saying one long sentence. And so in a sense the whole thing is a unity. And in a moment we'll see why why that is. Um, I, I actually took about, when I preached on this some years ago, I took five sermons to get through these three these verses so today we're, we're, we're taking a bird's eye view of, of the passage and not going into huge amounts of detail but the first thing I want you to notice about this passage as it unfolds how salvation works is how Trinitarian it is how the triune God is at work in every aspect of the sal- of salvation. Let me take you back a couple of months when we began to talk about the covenant of grace. And can you remember where we started? We didn't actually start in history. We started in eternity. We started talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son and quietly the Holy Spirit. And the arrangement that seems to have happened in, in eternity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We talked about how the Son would take to himself an office, the office of the suffering Christ. And in that office, as it were, the Father and the Son, the Son enters into covenant with his father about the salvation of his people. And it is a covenant arrangement. Remember, we looked at this. The son willingly takes on certain obligations from the father. He agrees 
We looked at all of this in the Old Testament, all the prophecies and writings about it. He agrees to take to himself a body and to be born as a man. He agrees to be born under the law. So here's Jesus. He comes as fully God and yet he is fully human. And now he lives under the law like every other human being lives under the law. But then he is to suffer and die as a representative for his people. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, takes upon himself those obligations, those covenant obligations to his Father. And in turn, the Father promised certain things to the Son. One is that he would receive a body, that the Father would prepare a body for him, Psalm 40. That he would be given the Holy Spirit. His Spirit would anoint the Son. So he would live like a human being in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like every other Christian does. Living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that he would be promised future blessings. If he met all his obligations of coming, being born as a man, born under the law, suffering and dying on the cross. And those future blessings, end of Psalm 22, just look at them. Gathering in the assembly, leading the praise of God's people with a body of people who have been saved to his joy. And so for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. And so he received all that was promised. This heavenly covenant between Father and Son and the Holy Spirit all takes place outside of history. And then we begin to see it working out in history. And we have followed the workings of that over history. But now we see how salvation now comes to human beings because of that covenant. You see how the Father... Is at, this, is, is at the beginning of this passage. Verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then it moves on to the Son. In verse, verses 7 through to 12. Just read verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And then finally it moves to the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, in him you also, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now the point I want to make at this point is, that this, is, this passage is about how God The triune God works out salvation for individuals, real people, you and me, in history, in our personal experience. And it's rooted, that plan of salvation is rooted in what God is actually like, that he is triune. And I don't simply mean that he has certain attributes that are 
conducive to a, a plan of salvation like grace and goodness and mercy and so on. But the very fact that he is tri-personal, three persons in one God, makes salvation possible. If God were not three persons, there could be no salvation And a conclusion of the fact that three persons are involved in that salvation is to realize the total unity of purpose between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this plan of salvation. Now, I need to say that because there are some Christians who don't pay a great deal of attention to the Trinity and they're actually a bit confused about the Trinity. They think of the Trinity... Like it's a Rubik's Cube puzzle that's really, really interesting for a minute or two and then you find it's really hard and then you put it in the back of the cupboard and you forget about it. And the result of that is, is most people are pretty mixed up about the Trinity. For example, I think most evangelical Christians believe that God will choose a certain number to be saved whether it's in advance or looking down the corridors of history or whatever it is, God chooses some people. So most people, most evangelical Christians will believe that. God chooses somehow. But then some people will say, but Jesus died for everyone. So you, you get some people are chosen, but then there's a whole raft of people who, for whom Christ died. So it's a different group of people. And then thirdly, Some people will say the Holy Spirit cannot work in someone's life until they choose to come to Jesus Christ. And so they require somebody to make a decision. So the the, the Holy Spirit is powerless to save anyone unless the person chooses. And so it's a different group of people altogether. God chooses some. Jesus died for everyone. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything for anyone unless they ask. What a strange thing. Three different groups of people if you don't understand the Trinity. And you divide the unity of of God and the unity of his purpose. You don't understand. You know, when you you hear a scheme like that, you begin to wonder, who's in charge around here? (laughs) Is God actually in charge? Does he know what he's doing? Of course, it's silly because our dear friends who sometimes think this way haven't thought enough about the God they worship. That's true of all of us to a certain extent. So I'm not complaining too much. Just encourage you to study God and understand who He is. You see, there is complete unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unity of purpose, unity of provision, unity of power in salvation. This is our God. So let me now look at just each person in turn in the Trinity and how they're acting. And the first thing to say, excuse me, is that God chooses his people. And he does so before the foundation of the earth. He does so before anything ever existed except God himself. But in his own mind, 
He has chosen a people for himself in his son. He knows exactly who he is going to save. Now I know some people have difficulty with this idea. And I think, if you just stick with me for a minute, the root of the problem and the difficulty that people have with the idea that God chooses his people is that secretly we believe that somehow the people who are chosen deserve to be chosen. There's something that there is something there must be something in the people themselves that makes them worthy for God to choose them. Uh, maybe that person's a good person, or having a, a, a nice and sunny disposition, or or even simply them choosing God. Oh well, I'll choose them then. You know, all these people are choosing me, I'll choose them. Something worthy in the person. In that way, it seems fair to people that there's something meritorious. There's merit in that person to be received. Paul doesn't say any of that, though. He simply says, before anybody was ever made, anything was made, God chose them. Now, some people maybe say, well, maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe Paul was just being Paul. And we can exclude certain extreme things he said. Well, you have to do the same with Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. That's true of every disciple. And he says that he chooses, those that he chooses are those that the Father gives him. So the Father has decided... And the Father and the Son concurs. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father is in the business of drawing those whom he has chosen and giving them to his Son. So it's those people that he gives to the Son. That's a wonderful picture of the saving the, the wonderfully perfect, complete, effective way that God saves his people. Now I know that how disturbing it can be, uh, can can seem to be that God alone sovereignly chooses those whom he wants to save, but I just encourage you with time and prayer, you will see how wonderfully, completely gracious that is to men and women. We'll say more about it in a, in, about that election in a moment. But look at the look at the purpose of his choice. One is so that we can live before God in holiness and blamelessness. In other words, all the problems that we have with the sin in our lives before a holy God are are going to be removed. The penalty of sin is removed. The power of sin is broken, and the pollution of sin will eventually be removed in the fullness of time as Christ comes back. But another purpose is that these people whom God has given to his son are also adopted, become adopted. They are treated as children 
of God, adopted into the family. Now I know how difficult it can be to adopt children uh, into your family. I I know it because on my side of the family, uh, we've had experience of adoption. And it's presented all kinds of difficulties. And parents, but parents who do that and adopt children into their family, they usually, don't they, they bend over backwards to make the child feel welcomed and loved and included and, and blessed in this new family. Now, if that's true of ordinary human beings who are sinful, how much more true of our God in heaven? who adopts us into his family. And therefore, not surprisingly, all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. We all are able to rejoice in the God who has done this. Wouldn't you like to have a father like that? Well, if you're a Christian, you do. This is your father in heaven who loves you and has done everything for your salvation. Let's move on to talk about the son. And at the end of verse 6, Paul says... That all the blessings from the Father come in the Beloved, His Beloved Son. In other words, there is a a particular route through which those saving blessings come. They come through Jesus Christ. And the testimony here and elsewhere in the Bible is that there is no such other route. The only way that people can receive blessing from God... Is through Jesus Christ. That knocks out every other religion, every other philosophical system, every other belief system. Only through Jesus Christ can these blessings come. But notice what he says about uh, this Jesus. In him, we have redemption. We are people who are redeemed. What does that mean? It means we have been moved from being slaves. To being free, the great picture of that, of course, is the Exodus in the Old Testament. Led by Moses, he led the people of Israel to the promised land from slavery to freedom. Well, that was just a foretaste of the great Exodus led by Jesus Christ. From what to what? From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Says Paul in Colossians 1.13. And that transition, that translation, if you like, moving from one place to another, how does that happen? How can it happen? Through the blood of Jesus. It's one of the mysteries of Jesus Christ and one of the mysteries of the gospel. That this God of heaven should come down, take upon himself human flesh, and then die. There are so many people in the world that can't believe that our God did that. How can he be truly God if he did that? And yet, the paradox, and it's only an apparent paradox, is that through this death, through his blood, redemption was won for the people whom God the Father chose. He shed his blood. Oh, the horror of such a thing. That the Holy Son of God should come into the world 
and face death. The one man in the world who didn't deserve death. Because he was perfect. He didn't sin. And yet he comes. And you can hear the anguish of his soul as he he cries out to his father in heaven in, in Gethsemane. Remove this cup from me. What cup? The cup of suffering that the Old Testament spoke of. Remove this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And so in the end, he's fully submissive to his father. And he did it. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Well, think of the benefits that come through Jesus Christ to men and women. Forgiveness of sins, trespasses. And note what Paul says here. He has forgiven our trespasses, the same people who have been chosen by God. He has chosen us, and now he has forgiven our sins, the same people. Same group of people. And beyond that, Christ has done even more. He has procured for us an inheritance in glory. In other words, what we have now is not what we will receive. If you feel uh, blessed by God today, it's nothing compared to what you will receive. You're like a child who inherits a vast fortune that has not yet come of age. And it's all sitting there. But you get an allowance (laughs) in the months and years before you come of age. And then you come into the blessing of the inheritance. That's what we're like as Christians. We taste, we get tastings of the glory of God in our lives. And as we come to meet together like this, this is part of it. And if you don't like what you're doing here today, you're not going to like heaven very much. Because there's going to be more of it. (laughs) This is a great blessing. If you're a Christian today, you are richly blessed today. But you'll be infinitely more blessed when you come into your inheritance. So we've seen that the Father plans and purposes salvation in eternity for his chosen. Secondly, we've seen that the Son takes the office of Christ and becomes a man and sheds his blood, procuring redemption for those same people. Finally, how does it come to us personally in the 21st century, 2,000 years after Jesus Christ? How do I benefit from that work 2,000 years ago? Well, this is where we need to think about the Holy Spirit. And Paul says... uh, So that's the third thing. But Paul says, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice again, he's talking about the same people. The people who have been chosen. The people for whom uh, Christ offers forgiveness. And now the people who have been sealed with the Spirit. There's not one iota of a difference of intention between Father, Son, and Spirit to save people. So what does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, think about it when it happens. First of all, sealing happens by the Spirit at the point that you believe in Him. 
See what he says? In him you, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This sealing of the Holy Spirit happens when men and women, boys and girls, hear Jesus Christ preach to them. You know, when somebody like Paul comes and preaches to them. I mean, you can just imagine the situation. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. There's Paul, he comes into the city, goes to the synagogue first, and then ends up going to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, He gets kicked out and goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and starts preaching every day in the lecture hall. You know, and there'll be plenty of people who say, what's this babbler got to say? Let's, Let's have a laugh. Let's go and hear what Paul has to say. And let's maybe heckle at the back <laughs> and throw things at him, maybe. I don't know. You can just imagine it. But then, and you're one of the, imagine you're one of those people with a slightly cynical attitude towards Paul, and you're coming to see what this babbler's got to say. And as you listen, you begin to, there's something, you find there's something strangely heartwarming about what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. You know, your heart begins to kind of burn a little bit, maybe. You know, this person that you've never heard of, Jesus Christ, it becomes interesting to you. And then you hear about what he did. This man, who's God. And you see how he did it. And how he, he saved people. He, he went to save people who hated him. And killed him. And to learn in that man. There is forgiveness for every sin. And there is eternal life to be had. You begin to think. Oh, all, all my life, you know, I've. I can think of some terrible things that I've done. Embarrassing things. Cringeworthy things. That if I could go back again and redo, I wouldn't do them that way. I'd do something else. But you can't. You can't take it back. And you realize your life is full of sin. The more you dig into your, your, your life and you, th- you think about your life, you realize there's more and more sins. Can this man deal with my sin? So you're there in that lecture hall of Tyrannus listening to Paul and your heart is warming to Jesus Christ. And you find yourself inexplicably believing what he's saying to you. All my sins. Every single one, can it be true? And you may not, un- you may not be understanding all the ins and outs of the theology of it and everything, but you know this, that Jesus died for my sins and he can deal with my sins before God. And you believe it. What's just happened? The Holy Spirit has come. <laughs> In the preaching of the word. The Holy Spirit, as it were, the the gates of heaven have opened up. And the Holy Spirit has come down to you. And you believe. And you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
And you're believing, your act of believing is not a choice that you make. It's simply a response of the Holy Spirit's sovereign work in you, sealing you for himself and working faith and life in you. What's going on under the bonnet, as it were, is the Holy Spirit is bringing new life. It's what Jesus called in John chapter 3, being born again. Or what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.17 as being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's not something you choose. It's not something you wanted particularly. Not something that you can work up in yourself. Nothing that you can, nothing's happened there that you can make happen. It's happened to you. And it happens because... The Father has chosen you. The Son has died for you. And now the Holy Spirit has come to you. And sealed you for Him. And the Holy Spirit, if you like, is that stamp of royal approval of God upon you. Isn't that amazing? If you're a Christian... Isn't it amazing that God should do it all for you? And because he does it all and you have contributed nothing, you can be sure that you have it. People who think they contribute to their salvation are always in doubt. Have I done enough? But because you know it's all of God and you believe in him, you know your salvation is sure and certain. And you don't need to have any doubts any longer. God's covenant of grace has come to you graciously and sovereignly and it is all of him. If you're not a Christian this morning, are you not intrigued by this? Do you not find yourself drawn to Jesus as you've heard about him this morning? Well, you may say to yourself, oh, I'm not sure if I'm chosen though. Follow the chain back. How can somebody know that they're chosen? Because they believed. And because of the unity of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been chosen. It's the evidence that you've been chosen. So do you believe in him this morning? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful plan of salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work together and bringing about new life in men and women. May this be true for every single person here, man, woman, boy, or girl, that we all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation in him. Amen.